We're in Mark chapter 12, if you'd like to open your Bibles there or navigate on your device. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. Mark 12, 1 through 12. The topic, the vine dressers that lease the Lord's vineyard prove to be wicked men who violently oppose him. The title of our message, the days of wine and posers. Let's have a word of prayer. Some of you need to come first service. Will some of you commit to come first service and, and be kind of a living laugh track? Because it's, it's so discouraging. First service can be so discouraging. I mean, if it wasn't for you, I don't know what I would do, but... Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here this morning. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you have given us a way to know you, to understand your love for us, to be loved by you, and to take that love and share it with others, the love of Jesus Christ, example for us in his life, but mostly in his death on the cross for the sins of the world. Today we've got this text in front of us. It has a particular historical value and a particular meaning to the nation of Israel and to the times in which we live as well. But we also want to derive from it without doing violence to the text application for our own lives and for the the highs and lows, the struggles and the successes that we find happening in our life today. We pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to accomplish all of that and more. And we pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said... Amen. Some years ago, Pam bought me a coffee plant. It was one of the greatest gifts I'd ever received. I thought it was such a great gift idea that we sent a similar plant to friends of ours in Mission Viejo, California. They enjoy both coffee and gardening. I promptly killed my plant. Uh, nothing I could do to make it live. It just it was disgusting. I felt really bad about it. I figured the same fate was in store for the plant we sent. About three years went by, I'd forgotten about it, and then our friend sent me a picture of their plant. It was a huge bush on their patio, a giant coffee bush. I got over it, but I was happy for them, and it was bearing coffee cherries. And so our friends brought us some of the crop, and together we began to process them by removing the beans, which, by the way, I learned I would never want to be a uh, coffee uh, you know, cropper or whatever they would call it. So I couldn't think of the word. Uh, harvester. There you go. All right. Stupid, stupid. Anyway, I learned how to soak them and to sun-dry them, and then I kept our friends informed with pictures and videos and text. So we shared the whole experience together. I eventually roasted the beans, resulting in the best, worst cup of coffee I've ever had in my life. I mean, it was rot gut. I would drink Folgers before this stuff, you know? And, you know, oh, I drink Folgers. Yeah, that's what I mean. So, uh, if, you, if you understand, you know, Gene and I are into really high-end craft coffee. So, but it was terrible, but it was great because we grew the beans and harvested them and roasted them, and mostly because it was a shared experience. Experience. In our Bible passage, Jesus is going to compare the spiritual leadership of the nation of Israel first to wicked vine dressers and then to builders who lacked wisdom. In our discussion of the details, we might miss an important point. In both of the endeavors, in the vineyard and in the building, there was joy from sharing a relationship with God. Now Jesus intends for us to understand that he wanted to enjoy walking with them in the vineyard and working with them on the building and that he intended the joy to be mutual. 
Enjoying Jesus in our walk and in our work is going to be our application as I organize my thoughts around these two points. Number one, think of your walk with Jesus as a vineyard where you enjoy cultivating fellowship with him. And number two, think of your work for the Lord as a building where you enjoy constructing on his foundation. Let's take a look first at the vineyard in verses one through nine. Now, when we encounter this parable, it seems sort of like a standalone parable. But that was not the case for a first century Jewish hearer. Jesus' audience would have immediately thought of the fifth chapter of the book of Isaiah. Let me read to you what they most likely had memorized or at least were extremely familiar with. Isaiah chapter 5, this is verses 1 through 7. Just listen. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, only a cry for help. Now, the Lord says plainly through Isaiah that Israel is the vineyard. Trouble was they were not walking with him. The prophet Jeremiah records their behaviors. He says that, among other things, they were oppressing the poor and the widows, and they were worshiping idols openly, uh, even in the temple of God. On account of the failure of the people of Judah to walk with the Lord, God would lay waste their vineyard. After many warnings, he would allow them to be overrun and taken captive by the nation of Babylon. And this is what happened historically. Now, as Jesus tells the parable of the vineyard, the leaders perceive he is speaking about them. Like the leadership during the time of Isaiah, they had failed to walk with God. Apart from genuine repentance, they too were headed for destruction. Now, once you understand the background, the parable itself is pretty straightforward, and you understand how the different parties are receiving it. So let's get into it in verse 1. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now this is the only parable Mark records, although he says there were others. He edited his comments to make certain points. And just in passing, let me say this. We would do well to edit our comments about Jesus, submitting them to the Holy Spirit, so that we say just what is helpful and needed, no more, no less. It's too easy to be verbose and to keep talking. Sometimes you need to just say what you need to say to a person, let's say if you're sharing Christ with them, and then ask them for a response. I remember I've told the story before, I won't tell the whole story, but the the guy who led me to Christ, a good friend of mine, Lauren Faulkner, took me out to breakfast and he talked to me for 90 minutes until he was exhausted 
physically and spiritually. And he said, so do you want to get saved? I go, well, sure. I thought that's what you were going to ask me 90 minutes ago. <laughs> and I did get saved that day. And so it's, it's kind of a funny story. But sometimes we just, we want to, you know, I don't know, if, we just get nervous. But just ask the Holy Spirit to help edit your uh, comments and get to the point and, and um, share Christ. The construction of the vineyard, as it's described here, and the leasing of it, all standard stuff in their culture, it establishes that the owner had done everything possible to ensure the success of the endeavor. This is what we call today a turnkey operation. Everything's ready for you to just step in and start producing grapes and wine. And so don't overlook that this was a mutual project. The vine dressers had a lot of work to do for sure, but the owner had also put in lots of effort. Together, they would produce and enjoy the fruit and its byproducts. Now, verse 2, now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. The owner would receive either grapes or wine at a prearranged rate. Verse 3, and they took him... And beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Now this is where the parable goes extreme. This type of response was unheard of. It was shocking, it was immoral, and of course it was criminal. The vine dressers treated the servant, and by extension the owner he represented, as if he were a criminal. They acted as though he were trespassing on their property, and as if they had the right to do him harm. Think of that. God sees the religious leaders who were hassling Jesus as men who had expelled him from his own nation. These men who were going through all the motions of worshiping God there in the magnificent temple that Herod had rebuilt for them, God said, you have evicted me. You consider me a trespasser in your worship. They were men prone to violence. They too were oppressing the poor and the widows and they were heaping religious burdens on the average person that they were not willing to help them bear. It's a type of violence. When you go to a church or some kind of a group and they are putting burdens on you and forcing you to do certain things, it's, it's abusive. It's a violence and God is not pleased with it. Not everyone who claims to know the Lord is saved. There's coming a time in the future at the end of the seven-year tribulation when a grip of people will think they have been serving God, but Jesus will say, depart from you, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, I'm not suggesting anyone here who professes Jesus is headed for hell. I am suggesting that it's all too possible for us to think we are right on track, right on target, right on time in our walk with the Lord, but oftentimes it's just a poor self-evaluation. You, you do these evaluations sometimes, uh, they come online, maybe if you go someplace and then they want you to take a survey and they always have the one to ten, you know, one being bad, ten being great. Whenever I do my own self-evaluation, I can't help it, I score all tens. I'm just that good. Maybe towards the end, you know, because uh, they usually say, is there room for improvement? I think, well, if, I guess I, I better give myself a nine on something, you know. Uh, but, you know, I'm exaggerating, but not by much. Not by much. If you've ever counseled with somebody, uh, you know I'm not exaggerating because we have a very high opinion of ourselves and you know that you do as soon as somebody challenges it or exhorts you or rebukes you and then it's on. 
We need a spirit evaluation, not a self-evaluation. The psalmist approached the Lord and said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. And the word search there, it's a word used of a deep exploration, not merely a surface examination. Who am I below the surface, beneath the exterior? Only God knows, and he can show me. The Bible says of itself that it can divide between the soul and the spirit. Wow. That's someplace no one can even see, let alone divide. But God's word, as we encounter it, under the influence of the Holy Spirit and his inspiration, as we're in a time of prayer, like we'll have at the end of our service, God can reveal to us his spirit evaluation. And we ought to be happy to have him do it, because our lives are his workmanship, and he is trying to make us uh, more into the image of his son. And so think about that as we go forward today. Now back to our parable. If you were the owner of the vineyard, how would you respond to the return of your servant, empty-handed and beaten? Mount up, gird up your swords, there'd be vine dressers to kill. I mean, you'd be on your way. But that's not what happened. Again, he sent, verse four, another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. The particulars are not that important except to note that the violence escalated. Apparently this servant came and they were out working in the vineyard and they saw him from a distance and they all grabbed stones and started chucking them at him. One of them hit him in the head and he was severely wounded. If you were the owner of the vineyard, the owner of the vineyard, excuse me, how would you respond to the return of your second servant, empty-handed and wounded? To paraphrase Inigo Montoya, you'd say, "Hello, I am the owner of the vineyard. You have wounded my servant." prepare to die. It'd be over. Yet that's not how the owner responded. Again, he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Now, before we talk about the owner, what about these servants? Seeing what happened each and every time, they nevertheless each went as they were sent, faithful to the master at any cost. This is quite a household. These are These are servants who are 100% committed to their master. Now, the servants in the parable represent the prophets that God sent to Israel time and time again. Most of them were mistreated, and many of them were killed. Jesus would lament over Jerusalem, and he would say this. This is from the Gospel of Luke. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. So Jesus, looking not just at his contemporaries, but at the history of the nation of Israel, realizing that God was constantly trying to give them what was best for them spiritually, and they would evict him, go their own way, and he would send them prophets. And instead of listening to them and repenting, they would, uh, mis- they would abuse them and mistreat them and kill many of them. The first martyr of the church, Stephen, would say this to the Jews, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. And so if the question was, if you're thinking, well, which prophets did they kill? Stephen would say, which ones didn't they kill? That'd be a shorter list. And it was notorious. I know what you're saying. Good thing I'm not a prophet. Well, no, but you are a disciple. And as his disciple, your life is not your own. Serving the Lord might cost you everything. Annually around the globe, according to certain sources, over 100,000 believers are martyred. 
That's about one every five minutes if Siri is correct. You're just a little known fact. You can change Siri on your iPhone to a man's voice. And it's just, I don't know why I said that, but it's fun. Now, I hope those statistics are greatly inflated. You think, I know, 100,000, that seems inflated. 50,000, 25,000. What's a palatable number of martyrs? Zero. But you see that biblical Christianity is an all-in proposition. When we used to play cards growing up, we used to, uh, Saturday night, my whole family would get around and we'd have the poker chips and we'd all play poker and stuff. There was none of this all-in stuff. When did that start? I mean, you had to bet and, you know, it was hard to win the pot and be the one with the most money. Now it's like, I'm all in. Just, it, it, I know it's the rules. I know it works, you know, and so, but it's just crazy to me. So, you know, but if you're a Christian, even today in the United States where we're not being martyred, you're all in. There, there's coming a, there could come a time when people say, hey, are you a Christian? And if the answer is yes, I'm going to kill you. And so it's an all-in proposition. Now the owner, back to him, he was crazy long-suffering, way past anything you could expect. You might even suggest he was wrong for letting these guys get away with it. What did other vineyard owners think of this guy? When they got together and had their monthly vineyard owners meeting, the Vineyard Owners Association, Hey, how's that going? You getting your pay from those guys. Uh, They killed three more of my servants. What's the matter with you? And, And it's just, it's crazy to think about it. It touches ever so slightly on the criticism non-believers have of God that he allows evil to not only continue to exist, but to actually prosper. They think he ought to do something about it. They don't understand that when he does what he's ultimately going to do, they too will be lost for eternity having rejected Jesus. God's crazy long-suffering waits for them. It waits for the unbeliever. It waits for you if you're not a believer today. And that's a precious thing. Some of you have only been saved a few months or a few years, maybe a decade or three. But if the Lord had come back prior to any of that time, where would you be? depending on the timing, some of you would be in the great tribulation. That's where you'd be, suffering. And if we can't believe Jesus now, how are we gonna believe him then when there's this great deception and things going on? And so the Lord is long-suffering and we're thankful that he is. The owner of the vineyard had one last move. Verse six, still having one son, his beloved. He also sent him to them last saying, they will respect my son, But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. There's something really obvious here, but it struck me in a way that I hadn't thought about it before. Jesus is speaking to them about himself and about his mission and about what they were going to do to him. I can only wonder at the tone of his voice and the expression on his face. I wonder if Jesus wept through these words, wept for himself because of the sheer horror of what awaited him at their hands and at the hands of the Romans, but also wept for them knowing what was coming afterwards in judgment, both temporal and eternal. So this is much more than just a parable. I I probably shouldn't admit this to you, but I've grown emotional in my old age. I think it's hormonal. I have some kind of hormonal imbalance, but uh, 
I cry at movies now all the time. Pam's always looking at me. She goes, are you crying? It was just my allergies. But we were watching a movie the other night. And um, you know how at the end, after the movie's done, then they, they run some text about what happens to the different characters for the rest of their life? Pam likes me to read that because I'm closer to the TV and I, I, you know, she just likes me to read. So that's my job. That's one of my jobs when we're doing movies. You have jobs in your family. My job is to read that for no particular reason. So I'm trying to read. And then he went. And he went. And he it was a professor at the university. She goes, are you crying? I go, no, I'm just having a hard time getting my breath. And, uh, but man, I was weeping like a baby. I mean, it was just so emotional. Who knew that Transformers could be that emotional? Uh, well, it, wasn't, it wasn't Transformers. Finally, the owner must act in justice and not with mercy. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Now that is precisely what happened when Titus led the assault on Jerusalem around 70 AD, destroying the temple, resulting in the dispersing of the Jews around the world for the subsequent 2,000 years. God has made unconditional promises to Israel that they will enjoy a physical kingdom on this earth. Jesus came offering that kingdom, but when he was rejected, it was postponed. He will establish it in the future at his second coming. God is not through with his beloved vineyard. We see since 1948, Israel is a nation again. And that is the miraculous fulfillment of many Bible prophecies. We also read the future history of the Jews in books like Daniel and the Revelation. Jesus will return to Jerusalem. He will set up his kingdom. Israel will be the center of that kingdom. Now, Jesus said after the son was killed that the owner would give the vineyard to others. Who are the others? The Apostle Paul said at the, book, uh, the end of the book of Acts, Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And they will hear it. Gentiles are all the nations that are not Jews. They have not replaced Jews as God's vineyard. Gentiles and Jews alike are being added to the church. The church is a mystery not revealed until the New Testament. The church will continue to grow until Jesus comes to resurrect the dead from this age and to rapture living believers. Then he will pick up his dealings with the Jews as we read especially in chapters 6 through 19 of the Revelation. And I don't lose in all of this the fundamental understanding that God wanted to enjoy the fruit of his vineyard and that he intended the enjoyment to be mutual. The Lord portrays himself as providing everything necessary for the success of the vine dressers. His expectation was of huge, healthy grapes in abundance that would continually produce a great vintage. Wine in the Bible is a symbol for joy and especially a shared joy. So when God says, I'm planting a vineyard and putting you in there to work it, he's talking about having a shared joy with his people. Now, it's so hard to try to make this point about shared joy because of our preconceptions. As soon as I mention wine, we mostly gravitate in our thinking to issues of whether or not a Christian can or should drink alcohol. I'm a little more sensitive to this topic this week because I've been following an online forum of pastors that I belong to that have exchanged over 200 posts, some of them rather lengthy, on the issue of Christian liberty and alcohol. And so I know it's a divisive issue. I don't drink. 
I find in the Bible that drinking alcohol is a liberty, but I counsel that Christians must be uber cautious exercising all their liberties, and that certainly applies to alcohol. So that's my one sentence statement about that this morning so that I can get back to what I really wanna talk about. Uh, This whole vineyard metaphor says, enjoy walking with Jesus. In the future, by the way, do you know that, um, I'll just add this, do you know that Jesus said he's not gonna drink wine again until he drinks it with us in the kingdom? And so Jesus is abstaining right now from drinking so that he can enjoy it once again and have a fullness of joy when we drink with him in the future. And so it's a symbol of joy and especially the joy of fellowship with the Lord. And so this whole metaphor says, enjoy the Lord, be refreshed, be joyous, cast your cares upon him, let him shoulder all your burdens. We could say, be not drunk with wine, but be on, uh, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Under his godly influence, and this is from Ephesians, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. You should, in a great way, when you get to, in a greater way than when you get together with your very best friend, over a refreshing beverage or meal, you should enjoy the Lord. That's, that's what the Lord has designed for us. Now, we move from the vineyard to constructing on his foundation a building. I'm not a big fan of buying things that require assembly. I don't really have a mind for constructing things. Beyond my own ineptitude, I found over the years that more and more stuff that needs to be put together comes with instructions that are poorly translated into English. You know what I'm talking about? So many products come from China. Since so many of them do, the translation is being called, and I'm not making this up, Chinglish. So when you get some of these manuals, you're reading Chinglish. Here's an example, and this is, this is from, absolutely, I, uh, it's from a manual that was published online. Uh, it, it's not made up. For a remote-controlled car. Please, parent, must read. Inside contains small spare parts and please not to put the entrance inside or the in order to prevent result in the asphyxiation. For avoid dangerous, the absoluteness can't give not the full and three years old child to swim to play. Please not in the road to wait the dangerous place to swim to play. Under the normal usage, refreshed battery in the car may result in damage, become angry, leak the liquid. <laughs> I can only imagine Chinese people opening the remote control. Angry batteries, ah, leaking liquid all over them. And as we return to our text, Jesus... <laughs> Jesus tells the religious leaders that they are poor builders. Now, in their case, the instructions were perfectly clear, but they did not recognize the cornerstone of their building, and instead they cast it aside. And so in verses 10 and 11, have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is a direct quote from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. It was a popular psalm around Passover. 
The Jews thought it mostly meant that even though their nation was rejected by the Gentiles, one day they would be established as the cornerstone of all the nations of the world when their kingdom was established and their king on his throne. So they saw this as messianic, but they understood it to be talking about them as a whole. And by the way, people say, well, what do the Jews think about these scriptures that talk about Jesus? A lot of times they think it talks about them as a nation. Now, Jesus says, no, this is talking about me. It's talking about the Messiah, not the nation. He is the true cornerstone. Now, the analogy drew from ancient construction practices. Builders typically would reject stones until they found one that was perfect that could serve as the cornerstone, which obviously critical to the symmetry and stability of the entire building. Here, he claimed to be the cornerstone, or what we might say the foundation, for what God wanted built. Because Jesus didn't fit what the Jewish leaders were looking for, he was rejected. They had their own idea of what the Messiah would be like and who he would be. They weren't looking for a spiritual savior or a savior from sin at all because they had their own self-righteousness. They were looking for somebody to throw off the yoke of Roman bondage and lead them militarily. And this is why in the future, the Jews will embrace the man we know as the Antichrist because he will finally fulfill their fit. This is a good fit. Here's a guy that can bring peace and, and um, defend us against the nations of the world. And so Jesus came along and they rejected him. This was the Lord's doing refers to Jesus remaining the cornerstone even though he was rejected. As I mentioned earlier and as we often mention, God has a plan for Israel and his plan is intact and on track. It is marvelous in our eyes. Do you marvel at God's plan for humanity? We should. He created a free being who chose badly, plunging both creature and creation into catastrophe. But God immediately spoke of how he would resolve the crisis and redeem and restore all things. As we read the Bible, we see this drama of redemption and restoration unfold, culminating with the first coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, and then the creation of a new earth and new heavens. In 7,000 years of human history, no one has come up with an explanation for the human condition that can rival the truth of God's revealed word. When you understand what God says about the nature of man and the nature of the world and the nature of God, it resonates in our hearts. It speaks to that eternity in our hearts. There are religions and philosophies and psychologies and ideologies galore. Most of them are absurd at best, or they are the doctrines of demons at worst. Biblical Christianity alone can claim the inner transformation of the heart of a man and the ultimate glorification of that same man to dwell with God in eternity. I studied philosophy and psychology at a high level. I'm not claiming to be smart because I did, only that I was exposed to the very best that men had to offer by the very best secular professors in a prestigious university system. I could tell, even as a non-believer, that the explanations of men fell far short because they could not pierce between the soul and the spirit. They could not get to the heart of the problem. They could not solve any problems or even give satisfying answers. But God can do all of that, and he did that for me in 1979. I saw myself, I saw my sin, I met my Savior, and I was born again. And it's really just that simple. See yourself as you really are, a sinner. See the need for a savior and that person being Jesus Christ. 
and be born again as you believe on him by God's grace through faith. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So he left, uh, they left him, rather, and went away. Marvel superheroes have brought us adamantium and vibranium as the hardest materials known to man. A heart in rebellion against God is actually the hardest substance in all the universe. Think of this. God incarnate, filled with God the Holy Spirit, with a long resume of miraculous acts, speaking the living word of God, did not penetrate the hearts of these men. Instead, they went away seeking how they could kill him. That's hardness of heart. Jesus is and he will be the cornerstone of a revived Israel after his second coming. Meantime, he's the cornerstone or the foundation of the church. The Apostle Paul wrote, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The first century apostles and prophets went around and laid a foundation for the church. The Christians who follow them are called upon to build upon that foundation. 1 Corinthians 3, it says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I laid the foundation and another builds on it. Let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is why we study the inspired scriptures, one of the reasons, obviously, in the New Testament, because they lay the foundation for the church and for all things that we need to know as Christians. Now, rather than launch into a discussion about working for the Lord, the point we want to emphasize is the mutual joy we can derive from working with the Lord. You know, the work itself, it can be brutal. We spoke of martyrdom as a very real possibility for any believer. But even in martyrdom, we read stories of the saints experiencing an unspeakable joy as Jesus was with them in the work of martyrdom, which is obviously painful and and, uh, hurtful. Jesus is with them, bringing them joy. We quoted from Stephen talking to the Jewish leaders about killing their prophets and killing Jesus. They would stone him to death illegally and while they did, his face shone like the sun and he said, I see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. And so there's a joy in the work and that's what we're talking about. It seems hard to have this joy in the mundane, almost like you have to be a martyr to find it, but that's not true. We're to have this joy all the time or at least to discover it. And when what we thought we were building with the Lord seems to collapse, we're anything but joyous. Have you experienced a collapse? Has your life imploded in some way? Are you clearing out rubble even now? You probably have or you will. It's just, it happens. You're building, you're building with the Lord. You're doing everything that you know how to do with his resources that are abundant. And then your life just crumbles. Sometimes it's because of your own sin, but it can also be because of the sin of others. And here's the encouragement this morning. Your Father in heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ, they've experienced that. Essentially what God says is that I I went out, I set forth to build a vineyard. 
My nation of Israel, my people, the men of Judah and the men of Israel, they were going to be my vineyard and bring forth amazing fruit. And I provided everything that was necessary for their vineyard. There's no resource that was withheld, and it was all freely given. There was no burden put upon them whatsoever, and they tore it down themselves. They imploded upon themselves. They ruined themselves. And I had to experience that. And ultimately, Jesus, as a man, had to weep over the nation of Israel because of their implosion. But here's the encouragement. We see how Israel is being redeemed. We see how all things will be restored. We don't see that in our own lives because we don't know our personal future. We know our general future. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord or else the Lord will rapture us. And, you know, we know all of that. We just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow as we're standing amidst the rubble of our life right now. But you know what? We can trust the Lord, can't we? And we can have joy. The joy of the Lord can be our strength. We sometimes need to break through to that joy. And I'm hoping that this will help some of you and some of us. I've experienced some pretty significant implosions even in the last few years. But in the midst of that rubble, God will rebuild because all things really do work together for the good to them that love him and are called according to his purpose. We just don't see it as quickly as we would like, but it will happen. Let's pray.